Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Hello and welcome to the Autosport Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Kalmanorkas. Today, we're recording a special episode with the Le Mans Folk Hero. This month, we should have been enjoying and then reviewing the 2020 edition of the Legendary Endurance Race. As a result of the coronavirus pandemic, the event has been postponed until September. The World Endurance Championship, the ACO and Motorsport Games organised a virtual version of the event, which was won by Rebellion Williams Esports. But now attention turns towards the return of real-life racing. Therefore, we're delighted to introduce long-time Le Mans team manager Hugh Chamberlain. Hugh, welcome to the Autosport Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, and your good selves. Yes, not bad, not bad. Good. Just uh, adjusting to uh, things, hopefully getting more towards a little bit more normality when, when real-life sports happens. Obviously, we've got the footballs already returned. Formula One is coming and uh, before we know it, I think uh, it'll be September and we'll have a, a proper Le Mans 24 hours to talk about. But, uh, but yeah, one, one person I'm sure is hoping to, uh, to be going to that. I don't quite know the arrangements for media and everything and things like that at this stage, but uh, it's Autosports sports car guru, Gary Watkins. How are you, Gary? Gagging at the bit and waiting for news about Le Mans and whether I can go, you know, and I'm sure there are tens of thousands of British sports car fans who are, who are waiting on the same news. And the ACO have told us this morning when they've announced a new uh, sort of truncated schedule with practice and qualifying on Thursday and Friday, rather than the traditional Wednesday and Thursday, they've told us that come the end of the month on the 30th, they will uh, announce more details of sort of spectator attendance. So yeah, that, that's news that we're all waiting with bated breath. 
yeah, we'll keep our fingers crossed for that and see what that contains. So let's uh, let's start off with a question for, for both of you, really. But let's start with Hugh. So how does it feel to be approaching the third weekend in June and not having to recover from the exhaustion of being out either working or spectating or just seeing the greatest endurance event of them all? Um, it's very quiet, but it has been a bit quiet, hasn't it, of late? Uh, no, it's, it's very different because everything was geared when I was running cars to making sure that June was all right and you had enough money by end of June to pay for the bill, pay the bills. So it is different. It had been different since I stopped running the cars. Um, and uh, the fact that now all of a sudden with no cars and no races either, it's sort of one gets a bit lost. Don't know what I'm going to do. Twitching my fingers and twiddling my thumbs and important things like that I suppose. Yeah it certainly upended uh, upended everyone's just sense of sense of time and perspective it's sort of like well we're still still in the pre-season but it's getting warmer outside the days are longer it's all sort of very different but, yeah. but Gary I mean at least from a at least from a physical point of view I'm sure uh, you, it's, it's pretty different to not have had you know stayed up all night sleeping in a media centre driving back through France and getting your report in for autosport what would you be doing normally on this weekend? Well, maybe one after Le Mans. Well, hopefully, chilling out and seeing some friends and maybe seeing my parents because my birthday always falls during Le Mans week and has done for uh, all but like three occasions, I think, over the last uh, 30 years for me. So, uh, so by, by, the, by that, uh, my maths reckons that I'm actually only 27 because I've only celebrated three birthdays since, since I was about 24. So, uh, but yeah, normally chilling out, you know, obviously there's some lots to write about and analyzing the race, uh, you know, looking into some of the details that perhaps you can't find out uh, immediately after the race and perhaps teams and drivers don't know immediately after the race. So there's always things coming out, uh, you know, even, even months later, you're finding out details because parts are sent off and teams find out why they failed and that kind of thing. So a story of a Le Mans race for me doesn't really end uh, on Monday or Tuesday when I file my report. It really ends, it could end years later because people will actually admit to things that they won't admit one, two, three or four years afterwards. I mean, my question for Hugh is, I mean, you, you as a guy who went there and you've, and you've just told us that you went, in 1986, uh, working with uh, the organisation, with the Oscar organisation that well ran World Championship Sports Car Racing. I mean, you always went back and made a point of going back. I mean, I've always presumed that you had a love affair with the place. Maybe that was a love-hate relationship. But for you, it was just like, you know, you always penciled in where you were going to be in June. Yeah, I think that's right. But I think that my love affair started many, many, many years ago <clears throat> when I listened to Jaguars 1 in 51. And uh, I listened from then on because it was something that was quite remarkable to a small boy who knew nothing at all about anything other than the fact that he enjoyed sport. Uh, but the idea that a Jaguar had won when nothing had won anything after the immediately after the war. And of course, Formula One didn't exist as far as we were concerned on this side of the, of the channel because everything in Formula One was, was red and the odd green cars that were about built in 1935 or whatever, being ERAs and HWMs and whatever. The fact that Jaguars won 
and I was in love with the XK120 at the time. And then this competition version, the C-Type, came out. That was just so different. And I, from then on, that is the following year, 52 and then 53 when they won again, I, I listened on a little crystal set, a single valve in the middle of this crystal set, and listened to Le Mans because it was the only thing, certainly in sports car racing, the only thing that was ever on, it wasn't, wasn't any television at that time, but certainly there was nothing else on radio apart from Le Mans. So it became something of a, um, a very special event. So I always wanted to go there. Never thought that I'd be running a car. I thought I was going to be a race driver at that time, because you would at the age of not very many. You were a race driver, you know, a, a club God, race yes, driver. I, I was so doing, good. Doing clubmans in your, in your Malloc, or you had a succession of Malocs, I believe. But you, you went from that to being team owner, a team running other people's, as a result of a drunken conversation in a rugby club, which uh, is quite... Um, quite an unusual lead-in to a successful career as a team owner, I think. Certainly, it, Hoy was, was part of the problem. He was quite a good back row forward, actually, mm. on Will, but he only ever turned up to play uh, during, well, because he was still at university then, uh, or just after. And he, um, he came, came, sort of wandered up and said, I understand you have a racing car, and I want to drive a racing car, so I want to drive yours. And I said, go to hell. He said, no, no, I'm serious. I'll bring them money, at which point it suddenly he talked himself into the car. Because I disagreed with everything he said as a matter of principle. You kind of some job of a back row forward coming up and saying, I want to drive your race car, when it was the only thing I had in the world, really. And uh, he said, well, what, I, what we'll do, we, we, had, we had an agreement in the end that I would drive his supercart if I allowed him to drive my clubman's car. Hoy was quite fit and 20 years my junior. And the idea of me getting into a jelly suit to sit in a supercar, which had gears and things, and it was half an inch off the ground, I immediately thought it was just a perfectly normal sort of thing to do. What he didn't tell me was that he jacked up a test at Silverstone. And when I got to this blooming test, it transpired it was actually the test day for the British Kart Grand Prix on the Grand Prix circuit with a 150-mile-an-hour supercar tea tray and I'd never been so scared in all my life. Not actually physically scared, scared, but I knew I was out of, shouldn't have been there. <laughs> Definitely shouldn't have been there. And um, with all these little things buzzing around, and they were all the fastest carts in the world. It was a Grand Prix. And um, so after three laps, I think it was, I came in and said, yeah, thank you very much, very kind. So to get him back on that, when he got in my car about a fortnight later at, on the club circuit, so my test in the supercar was on the Grand Prix circuit, when I got to the, I nailed him into my clubman's car. And on his third flying lap, he was as quick as I'd ever been. Not that I told him that, because <laughs> he very foolishly didn't have anybody with a stopwatch. And I had, a, I had the only stopwatch. And I had my testing stopwatch, which meant I could, since nobody else had one, um, I could tell him how quickly he'd gone or how slowly he'd gone. So I never told him he was that quick, but I did agree to him to drive the car. So how did it then come up that you ran him with the, the Reed Wines uh, sponsorship and you, you ran him for three years in Clubman's and he, he pretty much cleaned up, didn't he? I mean, how did, how did the whole deal come together? Did he, he, he had a mate who was Mr. Reed Wines. Yeah, uh, Mr. Reed Wines, or Mr. Reed, mm -hmm. uh, dear old Charlie, his father I knew 
Sir Alexander, who had a beautiful, beautiful uh, farm estate, a couple of thousand acres, which is quite a lot just south of Cambridge, I have to tell you. And um, he was a just a, a bumbler. He didn't really know anything about medicars, uh, but he was the sort of guy that Will would chat up and sort out the finance. And uh, the Reed Wines bit, he was involved in a, uh, a wine supplying organisation down in Bristol. But uh, he lived, his home was in just out north of Royston. But um, I'm not quite sure how it came, it sort of happened. I always had a, seemed to have had a clubman's car sitting in the corner of my shed in Buntingford where the workshops were, or in the workshop. And uh, Will actually f found the funding to buy a, a Mark 20, and I had a Mark 20 at the same time, I think. I think it was the same car, sort of car. And he acquired this thing, and uh, I set it up. I, put, I built an engine for him. Which was your up. bread and butter business, of course, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I was reconditioning engines from anything from a lawnmower to a, an earth mover. And I used to grind crankshafts and bore blocks and things. All self-taught. It was rather fun. And it was very interesting because it was it was just different to other things and you didn't go in and press a button and out came a plastic tea tray or something it was all quite uh, exciting stuff and it went anyway i built my own engines because i had to because i couldn't afford to buy one so by the time i actually bought a few bits of machinery or lease some machinery so i could rebuild other people's engines and then i suddenly found myself building a, an engine for will which he blew up in practice at, before he ever raced it Really, right? God, yeah. He, he, I don't know what he did, but whatever he did, he, I don't think there was anything wrong with the engine to start with. But it meant that on the Friday afternoon, the lads took the engine out of the car after the test, and I put it in the back of my whatever car I had at the time. I can't remember. Brought it back to Bundyford, stripped it down, reground the crankshaft, cleaned it all up, put some new bits and pieces in. And he then proceeded to put it on pole the following morning. Where they fitted, the lads fitted. The, I worked all most of the, a lot of the night. Took it back and they fitted. I got back to Silverson at about I don't know four o'clock I think. And the lads fitted it in the car and they put it on pole a bit later. And he led the race for most of the time, about two laps from the end of it. Only ten or twelve laps at the time. The throttle cable came undone, so they obviously didn't do a very good job at six in the morning with nailing an engine back in. Did you realise that Will was a bit special? You know, of course, he goes on to have a stellar career, wins the British Touring Car Championship. <clears throat> Did you think, blimey, this guy's good? Oh, yes. He caused my retirement about three years later when I was in the same race. And I was running about four cars in Clubman's at the time because nobody else seemed to do it. Nobody came along and said, I want an engine, please. And since you set the car up for Will, it's obviously quick. Could you run a car for me so we did um but i was beetling down through maggots at the club the old club silverstone and as i was going through maggots down towards uh, beckett's and you can actually see not that i've ever looked before but i was watching the race happening because will was came back onto the he was on the straight heading down towards woodcut on about the third lap i thought bloody hell he's about half a mile in front of me already and i thought i I think perhaps what I better do is be a manager rather than driver. And then, of course, you came—you know—you came into sports car racing proper in 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 the old British Thunder Sports uh, Championship, which was a sort of run what you run championship that ran from from like 
the early 80s to the uh, late 80s. How, how did sort of that happen? I mean, you, had, you turned up with a Tiga, which was more or less a Sports 2000, with a Formula One engine in the back. <laughs> how well, did that happen? Carefully. It was, um, yeah, it was a bit odd, wasn't it? That we, it was just because of Will and, to a small extent, me, we were about to wreck Clubman's because you either, because with, with Will there, everybody else was arguing about second place. He was that good. If he's arguing about second or everybody else is arguing about second, what are we? he's not going to stay in Clubman's for the rest of his life. He obviously had the talent to do practically anything he liked. So what happened then was that I had to make a decision, either a stay in Clubman's and we, we argue about, we're, ne- we're never going to win in the way that we had in the past with Will. So either play and let other people win and we'll just do whatever we want to do, or we move out of the category and leave everybody else to argue about first. And everybody's saying, well, thank God Hoy isn't there. Um, and so then we ran a couple of Clubman's cars in Thundersports, but with bigger tanks because we had to. But you were allowed... Thundersports was John Fulson's idea. and whatever one thinks about John Fulston, I have my own ideas and theories and bits and pieces. And he did race one of your cars once, didn't he, at Brands Hatch in a Group C race? He did but indeed. That's, a, that's probably another story. It anyway. is another story, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, if you like. But, um, no, no, he, uh, Crichton Brown was part of the opposition in Clubman's. And, of course, the director of McLaren. Indeed, so. And it was him that introduced me to Brian Hart. Uh, and my liver has suffered ever since. <laughs> oh, Brian. We spent an awful lot of time talking about absolute rubbish. Uh, but from quite a, quite a way up the, up the, uh, the scale of, of motorsport, we talked rubbish over lots and lots of white wine and cheese, I seem to remember. As a result of that, he said, Crichton, Crichton had the idea of going into Clubman's with it and using a Brian, one of Brian's engines. Brian didn't want to do it because he was too busy trying to sort out the why the Formula One engines weren't working, which I think I had quite a bit to do with confirming why they were going wrong, actually. But um, shall I tell you about that? Yeah, yeah why not? Well, 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 while we're there. While we're there, yeah, we had this, this you say, it was a Tiger, but nobody really knew as privateers, certainly not us, who knew, nothing, knew quite a bit about Clubman's cars, but not much else. And we had this engine which was producing enormous power i mean unbelievable power mathematically we reckon it was doing 190 something down the back straight at sned which is quite quick for a sports car all they ever did was change up <laughs> just go beep beep beep, beep. And it was doing 100 and, oh cracky better stop um the problem was we couldn't control the, the temperature poor old brian in formula one um everybody was they, the engines kept on blowing up but nobody knew why other than they just said it was brian's fault and what was the, the they were convinced it was the head, ga- the head gasket was blowing because, 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 because. And what people were doing was putting more and more cooling into their chassis because they thought it was getting too hot. We couldn't control the, the temperature on our car. We had tank tape all over, had, had two bloody great radiators on this car to try and cool it down. But we could never control the temperature properly. And I was talking over the 15th bottle of something with Brian about this fact. And he said, well, um, and he obviously had some idea because he was making a monoblock engine. So the head was part of the uh, cylinder block. That was done so that he could not have a head gasket and therefore not blow a head gasket. But our car, we were talking off, just 
talking to a couple of chums together, really. And suddenly his face changed colour. And it was obviously he realised something was going wrong here, and he realised what it was, I think. And he gave me a damn great big pressure gauge. Would you please attach this pressure gauge somewhere on the dashboard of the car and on the inlet, put, put a, a brazier little thing onto the inlet of the, of the water pump and then go and drive it. Take you to Silverstone because <clears throat> you can go fast enough down the straight. And so he said, can you do that? And I said, yeah, we'll do that. So I went to, Snet, to uh, Silverstone a couple of days later with this blooming thing and a damn great big pressure gauge. And uh, it's all very well, but if you're sitting in an open car and you're not really a racing driver, but you are perfectly capable of driving a racing car. I used to drive them, but didn't race them. And going down to Stowe on the old circuit, and I was supposed to be looking at this pressure gauge. And if you're going down there and the engine's howling and the wind's blowing and the wheels are dashing up and down and the bodywork's moving all over the place, what was going wrong? And I had a look at this pressure and it went to zero. No pressure at all. Went back to the pits, rang Brian. Brian, there's no pressure at all. Are you sure? Yes. Go and try it again, then ring me. Went out, tried it again. Sure enough, at about 7,000 RPM, bang, zero. And what was happening was that we had too much cooling. The water wasn't circulating at all. It was only thermosiphoning. So it was getting warm, hot bits were going up, and then it was, but it wasn't actually going around the system. So Brian confirmed that because we were then asked to bring the whole cooling system, two blooming great radiators and all the pipes and bits. And he nailed it onto his uh, dyno. Exactly the same thing happened. So of course, what was actually happening was that there were hot spots in the system near the engine but it, the pump wasn't circulating the water so what that meant was that all he did i say all he did but what he did was to increase the impeller size on the pump we increased the diet the inside diameter of the of the water pipes by only i think a quarter of an inch through one of the radiators away so we have one radiator radiator slightly larger in uh, water pipes and a bigger water pump and we never had another problem. You got on top of the, that engine. You then decided that you should sort of move up to the World Championship arena. So you basically stuck a roof on your hybrid, heart-powered Sports 2000 and went off and did the World Championship. Did, was that just sort of a natural thing to do? It was a bit like going from clubbers to something else because we, I didn't think that Thunder Sports was going to continue. And we could. We talking. There were. I think there were a few races for a British C2 series. Yeah, they came a bit later, didn't they? I think that was uh, not until eighty eight, eighty nine. Well, I can't remember what we used this, but we ran the first car. First time we ran the um, the Tiger with a top on it, as in C2 spec, was a Brands, and I don't think that was a World Championship race. It must have been a. Just as I don't know what it was. Perhaps it was still a Thundersport race. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know why. I think it was Hoy, again, who said, what you really should be doing is not playing with that car in ordinary racing. You should be uh, moving up a bit. And I'll get uh, Chris Parsons to give you a call. And he did. And, and, they, and he, the first thing he said was, right, well, I'll... Uh, one of you go to go to um, Fuji, I think it was, or Fuji, I think. Anyway, go there. 
we'll pay what <laughs> and so they did and, and so we we modified the car a bit but not much and uh, it was almost there and then a, a, a c2 world championship car and it's much nobody in their right mind it's like playing rugby at bishop stortford or twickenham um if you've got a car that's capable of running at Suzuka, Monza, and Le Mans. Why wouldn't you do it? It's there to be done. It's got well, got to be done, isn't it? Really? Of course, you didn't. You didn't get to Le Mans until '87. But really, your sort of breakthrough year was was '88 when you got the Spice, wasn't it? That was yeah. Sort of, well, and you were you were getting on the podium regularly. I think you had six podiums that year. Okay, you didn't you didn't beat the Spice Works cars, which would have been quite uh, hard to do. But you were sort of you know. You were, you were the, I think you were second in the championship. Yeah. So that was, yeah, that was a sort of year you broke through. The answer to that is yes. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what changed? Did you just, was it just experience, better drivers, that kind of thing? Because you've always, you've all, you always had a revolving cast of drivers, didn't you? Yeah. We've, we've never had, well, apart from Nick, Nick Adams. Right. Drove, okay. Nick Adams. Drove a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but uh, other than that, in, 88 and 90 had a regular partner mm-hmm. but 88 was the year the first year of the spice that's right we ran in 80 yeah 88 i think it was an 87 car right okay we mm-hmm. got it we should have had it early enough <laughs> oh yes that's right it wasn't until we got to scrutineering up monza in 88 that i was we were pushing the car down to have the fuel tank capacity checked and we supposed to have had the car in late 87 and the plan was to do Daytona but we didn't get it in time we didn't really have the money to do it so we cancelled that and went and waited and did more testing and went to uh, to Monza first and as we got within about 50 yards of the fuel checkout you know they used to fill it up you had to pump it dry fill it fill up with at their tank and as long as it was less than 100 litres we were okay and I, within a 50 yards of this blooming thing my guy my head man said you do know this has got a 120 litre tank don't you <laughs> uh, big pardon. Well, it was built for IMSA. Their tank capacity is 120, and it was going to go to Daytona, wasn't it? Right. Yes. Okay. So we had a bit of a problem getting through that, but there we are. How did you fix that uh, problem? Uh, we tried to cheat, <laughs> right? Um, because Derek, Derek Kemp, who was my number one man, without whom I couldn't have done anything. He was the one with the intelligence. Um, dear old Derek I said look what we're going to do is you're going to have to dive under there and because they have to turn the pumps on and when they turn the pumps on you've got to make sure nothing happens at this end and we'll leave 20 litres in the tank so we'll drain it out make sure we've got 100 litres in the tank but you're going to have to get under the bonnet because the whole of the back of the spice came up and you're going to have to block the system somehow i don't care what you do but that's what you have to do oh, okay that's gonna be dead easy so under fiddle around anyway we did it it was actually fantastic because he left 20 liters in it and then they filled up with 99.5 liters of fuel from their tank and i said right okay boys here we go because then of course he had to go back underneath and make sure that the pumps worked and it the pressure turned up on the on the on the uh, gauge and it would have been absolutely fine had the uh, Italian organiser not been, uh, he wasn't colourblind, which is a shame, because 
I said, well, that's fine. We can go. And he said, no, 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 no. He's an all good. <laughs> what do you mean? He said, here, Chamberlain. I put my fuel here. It is white. It comes out here. It is red. <laughs> and the stuff we'd used before was red for some reason. And he noticed the difference in color. <laughs> so he said, go away and bring it back tomorrow. One story you told me about sort of before we get on to 89 and your... Um your sort of ch- the first of your world championship wins, 88, you had a, a driver, an American stunt driver called Bobby Orr, who was going to do Le Mans Review. Tell us this story. Bobby Orr, the guy who ran Lola Motorsport, whoever it was, rang me and said, have you got all your drivers for Le Mans? No, I've got one here with 10 grand. And I said, sounds good to me. And he said, his name is Bobby Orr, and he's an American. He's driven Indy cars, he's driven this, he's driven that. Way. I said, has he got a proper license that he can do Le Mans with? He said, yes. I said, good, okay. So we, he wheeled him down the next day, and we didn't we agreed things. We signed a couple of bits of paper, and I waited for the money. And when he, I had doubts about it because I couldn't understand how he could possibly have got his license because I checked up, did a bit of homework on him. I don't know how he got the license. But the MSA gave him a license. But he was a stunt driver, so was he making big claims for him, his ability behind the wheel? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, he said he could drive race cars. That was good enough for me with 10 grand. <laughs> right. So that was all, everything was fine. But uh, he turned up, uh, and you, know, you remember what it was like at Le Mans in those days. You had a, nothing official. You just had a space in the, in the car park, and that's where you dumped your kit. But you had no, no spare room for a, an extra car, and Bobby Orr turned up in this bloody great big American something or other with flames down the sides, and, a, and a, his specialist car, his, his, his um, show-off thing, on a trailer. And he said, oh, I'll just leave it here. I can't leave it there. Leave it in the, leave it in the town centre. I don't know. You can't have it here. Not enough room. Anyway, he was, we couldn't get him in because he was a big lad. He was about six-something. We had to cut the tops of his, of his plimsolls off. Because he couldn't get in otherwise. And this is into the spice. Anyway, we took him around a couple of times. He kept on saying how good he was. and I still hadn't got any money, I have to tell you. But put him in. He couldn't start the car. Eventually, he did start it. Stalled it twice. Fired it up again. He got as far as the Dunlop chicane and spun the car. Unfortunately, for everybody, including Bobby Orr, unfortunately, he pressed the fire extinguisher button instead of the starter button. He hadn't hidden it, he just rotated. And having done that, having filled the, the place with foam and fire stuff, he then threw up in his hat. It was always helpful. So he, he was spat out. We got the car back. They pulled the car back. And uh, I made him clean the car out because, 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 because. Then he went home. Never saw him again. That was his entire Le Mans experience. And that was his entire Le Mans. He probably is going around now saying, I drove Le Mans. So he, he, made, he basically did 300 yards, probably, from the yeah, exit. nearly. To... The big year for you, I mean, Chamberlain Engineering won two world titles. 89, you won the World Sports Car Championship. Sorry, the World Sports Prototype Championship, to give of it course. its... Its current its name then of course that championship changed names sort of every other year it seemed you won it with Fermin Velez and and your mate Nick Nick Adams yep. 
um, you, you pretty much dominated. But you told me quite recently a story that you weren't actually going to go to the first race. But of course, that was the time Bernie Eccleston had been sort of had taken control of the championship. You were sitting not long before the first race in your office when you got a call from him. Tell, tell, tell us what happened there. The, the argument with Bernie was 91 or 2 when the girls drove one of the cars. That was, it was 90, 91. I oh, think. really? Okay. Yeah, the 89 race at uh, Suzuka, we had intended to take one car, but we were going to have a brand new Cosworth car for Adams and Velez. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't delivered in time because we couldn't afford to fly the stuff out there. So we had to send it by boat. So what we did was to get Adams and Velez to drive the, the Hart car at Suzuka. Mm-hmm. We didn't take a second car. We intended to have the second car in time for Dijon, which was the first European race. As it happened, we sent everything by boat and brought everything back by boat. Mm-hmm. And everything that, we came, that came, luckily, everything came back early enough to run the Hart car at Dijon as well. Mm-hmm. So we actually ran two cars from Dijon onwards. And, uh, but the first one was, um, the first race was, the, the, uh, was Suzuka with just a one car. That was the Hart car. And that was driven by Adams and Velez. The thing about that race was that we there were only half a dozen or so entrants, and I think there were a couple from um, Jean-Louis Ricci's team, and then a couple of Tigers and some Japanese cars. But we were leading because we were there were only about three still running at, towards the end of end of the race, and I we came in for our last pit stop. This is the story I was telling you earlier. Came in for our last pit stop. At the same time as um, Baker, Roy Baker's Tiger, sort of factory help Tiger. And that thing came into the pits with a graunching noise at the back. And they, had, they were taking their gearbox out. And so I knew that they were going to take 45 minutes at least to do whatever they had to do to the gearbox. And we came in as they were taking the, unbolting the gearbox. And they were already 15 minutes in front of them in a six-hour race. And it was 45, 50 minutes to go. So when Nick got into the car to get off to the last 50 minutes, I said, no, you're not going anywhere. You've got to stay where you are. Why? Because we can't be beaten. As long as we leave the pits five minutes after they go, we can't be beaten because they're not going to catch us. And the only thing that's going to happen is that you're going to try and bumble around on the marbles just to finish the race and get the points. So that's what we did. We stayed in the pit lane until they were bolting the gearbox back in. And then I said, no, you started up. They got very cross. <laughs> Nick was kept on getting out of the car and pacing around. I want to get back in. Well, you can't get back in. There's no point. All you can do is break something or crash something. So wait there when you can't get hit. I think I wrote a story and then I spoke to John Williams, who was a driver who drove for you on and off over the yep. years. And he said he was driving with you at Spa. He went out and set his qualifying time. And then you called him, you know, he did his minimum number of laps, yeah. got within the hundred and whatever percent. And then you called him in and he says, well, can I drive some more? And he goes, and you said, oh, no, we can't wear the thing out, can we, boy? You know, or <laughs> something like that. So you always, you always had one eye on uh, your budget and not wearing out brake pads, tyres, brake discs and everything else. For sure. We, didn't, we never had any money. We never, ever had the right money doing some sort of demon job to be able to get to the end of the, get into the next race. 92, you, Group C2 disappeared from the champion, World Championship for a couple of years and it came back in 92 as in it was yeah. called the FIA Cup. 
you won your second world title with uh, Ferdinand de Lesseps. And again, you, you once told me that you did that whole season on 50 grand. Luckily, we had an engine building business at the same time. So uh, we made a little bit of money on that and put it and, all into the race. Uh-huh. And that was the year that you won Le Mans, of course, uh, with, yes. with de Lesseps. I mean, do, do you see that as a sort of high point of your career as an entrance? Oh, yeah. And we should have class. won in 89. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And uh, we were leading by quite a bit because you always go by laps. But it was about 20 minutes in front. Again, we couldn't, as long as we went round and round at the people use their loaf, then it wasn't going to be that difficult to keep on going. And um, suddenly, of all people, Nick said there's a funny noise. Anyway, we checked it out and it was on seven. And what had happened was the uh, throttle pot had just moved a bit and it had gone weak and it had burnt the edge of a valve. We didn't know that. And unfortunately, um, John Nicholson had gone home. Everything's all right, I'll go home. So we didn't have anybody who had a, um, a ball scope they could look at it and say, yes, it's all bits and pieces. So I had to retire the car eventually. And that was, the I think, the worst moment of my motorsport career um, was really wanted to win at Le Mans. I wanted to win the World Championship, obviously. And we were leading and should have won Le Mans and then had more points towards the World Championship. But I couldn't do anything about the engine. I should be an expert on the engine, but I couldn't look inside of Cosworth because I hadn't got a ball scope. And nobody else in the pit lane seemed to have a ball scope. And so it was about 20, probably half an hour. And we were still leading the blasted category. But there comes a point where we had to say, look, we can't do anything else, chaps. I can't afford for you to go out and the end of a valve to drop off and wreck the engine because we just haven't got that sort of money. So, right, okay, so what do we do? And you have to sign the docket to say abandon and so we i signed the docket and had to walk away from the pit lane walk out of the pit lane back out in the car the bit behind the pits and i walked into a fellow called peter gilpin and peter gilpin we had a very small amount of money from silk cut but not gilpin was the man who was in charge of silk cut in the uk but some money came from velez fermi velez apparently silk cut was only only ever sold in the uk and spain i don't know why but that's the way it was and he got silk cut money from spain but i knew peter gold because we had to go and see him about various things during the year we had and he said um well done you're doing very well and everything's great and blah 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 blah, blah. and jaggers weren't doing that well at the time of 89 i said it's over we we had to pull the car out why and i told him about the engine i couldn't afford to rebuild the engine if a valve had dropped and it had gone bang and i knew it was top end so uh it was obviously going to be a valve problem but i couldn't tell what it was or how bad it was so anyway he said what do you mean you can't afford to buy it i said well i haven't got a spare engine <laughs> this is the only engine we have and he said well how much are you going to cost you and i said it probably cost it could cost 25 grand in those days and he said well go and unretire it i'll give you a check for 25 grand now wow. he said i've got my checkbook with me i'll give you 25 grand and i stood there and i i was already depressed and really sad and sorrowful and i just didn't want to speak to anybody and i said peter i can't unretire the car and why didn't you tell me that sort of thing beforehand and he said well it never occurred to me and i stood there in front of this bloke and i cried oh wow I, honestly tears rolled down my cheek i thought here you are great big lump of a, an oaf and you're bawling your eyes out like a 10 year old but that was the worst moment in my life it was just how can you possibly 
get to the point of being up there and then down on the ground. Obviously, then you won in '92 uh, uh, with uh, Delessa, uh, Richard Piper, and in Elindo Iacobelli. and then of course Group C sort of was on its uppers, and and you went on to run both. You went went on to run Lotuses, briefly Jaguar, although you you never qualified that car no. on in the day in the old days of pre-qualifying, and then of course. Uh, MG as the sort of the structure of the team was, was, was changing. And that's without mentioning sort of TVRs, domes, Lolas, just some, some amazing memories from all those years. Is there anything that you remember from, from the sort of later years of your, of your time at Le Mans? Certainly the, uh, the one that actually made it all come, made a lot of sense at Le Mans, and that was running Viper. We had Vipers for, I think, um, two, three, four years at least. And, uh, and they were the only car I ever took to Le Mans, which I knew would, should finish. Mm-hmm. Before you started, you knew that as long as the drivers used the clutch to change gear occasionally and didn't go screaming out the pit lane and spin t- wheels, because you could spin wheels at any time you like, really. A huge amount of torque in that engine. But those cars were really very important and some of the things that went on with those and i learned i thought i knew a lot about engines but the but the piece of string i've told the story about the piece of string (laughs) saved about 10 hours of running at lamar that did we broke a valve spring but the engine people were busy with orica and couldn't be bothered with no didn't have the enough people around to help us as well and we had a valve spring going of course the the last cylinder of that viper engine was under the the scuttle, and so you couldn't get at it very easily. Anything else would have been much more simple. But valve spring, we can we don't have to take an engine out to do valve spring. What we have to do is to keep the valve up, hold it closed, take the valve spring off, and well, we couldn't get anything in to hold the valve spring. So we were trying right to way. blank off the cylinder, basically, to run it on. Well, the no, I wanted to. What I wanted to do is change the spring to make it right again. Oh, okay. In situ, mm-hmm. in a spring that you couldn't really see because it was under the scuttle. Right. Piece of cake, mate. So simple. And what you normally would have done is pressurize the cylinder with something you attach a, an, uh, an airline to. So you have a spark plug with a, with a bit on the end with a hole in the middle and you wind it in, put the pressure in, pressure on the, through this modified spark plug, and it holds the valve closed, the pressure. Wrong. It should do, but of course the valve had, had hit the piston and sort of made it a bit, it wasn't quite seating properly. And so what you had to do was to get some other method of closing the valve and keeping it closed while you fiddle around and compress the spring and all the bits and pieces. So we tried everything. We tried things down the spark plug hole. We tried pressurizing. We tried holding it up. We tried to, we couldn't do it. And some bloke, and I never thanked him enough, but he said, have you tried string? And he said, oh, it's dead easy. What you do, a million people must have Billions of people probably know about this, but I've never heard of it before. You wind the piston down from top dead center a bit, and you get a ball of string, ordinary white string, not hairy string, old proper string. And you feed this thing down through the spark plug hole. And you put enough string in there, making sure you don't lose the end that you've got outside here, so it's still attached to a big ball. So that's all right. You then get the spanner on the front with a pulley again, wind the thing round till the piston comes up towards the top, and it compresses the, the string into the shape of the combustion chamber and holds the valve closed. 
you've then got the valve itself solid. You fiddle around, you get the pressurized disc, take the spring cap off, get the cotters out, take the valve spring out, put a new fitter valve, put the cotters back, pull the string out, or you wind it down a bit, pull the string out, job done. And you did this Five during the race? It, yeah. Oh, wow. It took, it took me two hours to, to meet this bloke who wandered in and said, what's wrong with your car? I don't know who it was. I can't remember. I didn't know, didn't recognize it, but that means nothing. I don't recognize anybody most of the time. He just told me that's what you should do, and it, we did it. And within 20 minutes, we'd done the job, got the car back, and out it went, finished the race. And I think that was the year that we had Yari Nurmanen in the uh, car. Okay, yeah. Poor old Yari. The, the worst thing that can ever happen to anybody is to be the first to come into the pit lane in a 24-hour race, because particularly at Le Mans, because you know that every camera in the world is going to be on you. But it was worse than that because the um, Yari was out on the circuit and uh, he, <laughs> he um, came in on the radio and said, uh, the gear lead was broken. Well, anyway, I said, can you jam it in something? He said, yeah, I'll get into second or third and get it back, which he did. And we went, in the meantime, I went down to see the, the Chrysler spares man and he said, um, I said, we haven't got, by chance, got another gear lever, have you? And he said, oh, yeah. He said, of course, yours is an early car, isn't it? Yeah. He said, the gear levers break on those. <laughs> really? So anyway, we had the bit when he, when he came in. We put the new bit in. Off he went. And he came in, at, right, because it was a long stint, because he'd done a, a bit and then a, in the pits and the side of the round. It was quite late on when he came in eventually. And he'd collapsed in the car, Yari. What? And he had, he just collapsed. And he'd had some, some, some blood disorder. And he'd actually got his own dock with him. And we had to drag him out. I thought he'd died. He went white as a sheet. We laid him out in the back of the garage. I said, no, you lay him out in the back of the garage. I'm going to get the car on the circuit again. So we got the guy, the other two guys, out in the car and off they went or off the car went and uh, Yari never got back in never he, he, it took him a week to recover oh, wow. he was in another state he ran Lola's as well under the Chamberlain Synergy banner which which sort of wasn't your team you were the sort of you were the front uh, of the team and you enjoyed a lot of success there many many years people would come to me because I read the regulations and they'd say, what about this and that and the other? And the lads would never, never once query anything that I told them. I could have been wrong, but it wouldn't matter. Because at least you say, that's the way it is. So at Spa, with a C2 car, we had three drivers, Bob Berridge and Gareth Evans and, and a third one. P2 Lowe. car, P2, not C2. P, a bigger one, P2. Yeah, the P2 car. The regulation said quite simply that you have to have... Um, each driver has to do X number of minutes or laps in the car in a six-hour race. And Peter Owen, who was the slowest of the drivers, was in the car first. And there was the most, the mother and father of all accidents at the top of Eau Rouge, the Radion. Kevin McGarity was uh, implicated in, in the Protran, if you remember that car. But, uh, oh, God, yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, I forgot Not that. his fault, I don't think. But, uh... No, well, it was a huge accident. Bits of car and engines and gearbox and things. You can see that from the pit lane. 
And I said, that's going to be a pace car for a long time. I got Peter Owen to come in. I think I'm lying. Peter Owen didn't start the race. Gareth Evans started the race. And I got him to come in. And he said, why? And I said, don't argue, come in. Right. Peter, hat on in the car. Peter, the slowest driver, had to do his hour. And 48 minutes of it was done behind the pace car. Which worked for you. Absolutely. Which worked very well. And we won. Mm -hmm. These three old duffers, and I'm not being too rude about them, but they're all in their 50s, or if they weren't, they're very close to being in their 50s. And there are three young Frenchmen who came second, and they could not believe that they'd be beaten by these three three guys, all of whom were old enough to be their fathers. And they were standing on the second thing of the podium, and we were up on the top, and they were extremely irritated by the fact they'd been beaten by us. But, of course, we had the two quick drivers running when we should have had. You, and you've been back to Le Mans recently. You ran uh, a GT4 Aston in the Aston Festival race, uh, an LMP3 car. I mean, do you, think you're, do you think you'll be back at Le Mans with your headphones on one day? Oh, God, I'd love to. Yeah, it's, um, I'd love to. Yes, it'd be great. I won't be back as a team owner unless I win the pools. In which case, I would be immediately. Right. <laughs> you, w- you would want, I'd, yeah, I would love to go back. I rang somebody up who said, and when I heard that they were running four or five cars in that LMP3 thing, and I said, look, I don't know much about you, but I know you're a reasonable organization, and you've got this number of cars, blah, blah, blah. Now, you can't tell me that you've got enough expertise on Lamar to do your first race, even if it is a one-hour, two or two one-hour races. You can't do with somebody who knows a bit about Le Mans. And they never rang back. And I thought, well, that's all right. So nothing new there then. Is there um, any other great stories? The sort of thing that happens to a team that intend to enjoy it and finish, if they can. Because you go to Le Mans to, to finish primarily as a privateer and to finish well if you can. But when... Uh, we had the uh, the P1, I think, the P1 Lola. The gearbox broke about two hours from the end. And uh, it was a mess, a complete and utter mess. And the lads took it apart and got two gears. You can get, I think they've got second and sixth or whatever it was. Second to get out of the pit lane and sixth to get down the straighty bits. Mm-hmm. And um, there was pretty, practically nothing else in the gearbox that worked. And you could, and it, it had a bit of scaffold tube in to hold the things apart, which sort of machined them. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. Eventually, it had to go out, and I stood in front of the, the pace car that was just going out to close the circuit because it was about three, five minutes to go or whatever. And you had to finish the last lap in under six minutes and all the things that go on. And But our car, I didn't want it to do more than two laps because I didn't it would do more than two laps. And we got it out and then in front of the pace car. So I stopped the pace car. And it was going, what? And I got my car bumbling up the pit lane and it stopped in front of the pace car. And I said, no, you stay there. Stay there. And when the car, the lead car, which must have been an Audi of some sort, went whistling past, I said, right, okay, off you go. And don't forget, you've got to do, you've got to go over the finish line, not after four o'clock or three o'clock or whatever time it was at that time what you've got to do is go after the the lead car has passed after four o'clock so that if it goes past at, at 
two minutes or half a minute two, it won't get the checkered flag for another lap. So you've got to make sure you only get there at you know, after the lead car has passed the finishing line and taking the flag. Race drivers, you, they're, they're not very bright, you know. This loon f got behind the lead car, completely forgot what I'd told him, came up to the line, waving madly, but the lead car had not taken the checkered flag. So the lead car slowed and he passed it? No, he didn't. No, no, oh, right. was, okay. no the lead car has to take the checkered flag on the first lap after, after yeah. the hour. Yeah. Okay. So he went past with 30 seconds to go. Mm. Ah, Our see. man came past thinking that the other guy had taken the checkered flag. No flag. He came on to what's happening. And he, I said, you've got to do another lap because <laughs> it isn't, the, the lead car has not taken, or the winning car has not taken the flag. Oh, bloody hell. So Danny went, had to do another lap. This time, obviously, he was going to take the flag. But the car lasted 300 yards after he had taken that flag. Oh, wow. 300 yards, he went, <laughs> and sees solid. Amazing. Okay. Well, just just got in in time. Well, yeah, guys, I think I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. But it's been absolutely fantastic, Gary. You've done all of the heavy lifting in terms of asking the questions. That's okay. That's okay. It's been fantastic listening to uh, listening to all your stories, Hugh. And and honestly, it's just a it's just a reminder of what a great race Le Mans is. How much it means to everybody, whether it's an individual, as a as a team manager, as a team owner, as a as a driver. All of it is just you know it's all wrapped up together in what a fantastic event. And we all very much look forward to it returning in September. So, Hugh, thank you very much for your time today and for appearing on the Autosport Podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon. We'll back soon with another episode of the Autosport Podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The, is it morning yet? Deal. How about now? Or now? Because morning time is McDonald's breakfast time. And that's the best time of all the times. Wake up with a little splash of sweetness. Get any size iced coffee from caramel to hazelnut to French vanilla for just 99 cents until 11 a.m. 
Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.